it was listening to those stories that allowed me to one continue on striving to do this mentorship, but then also that spurred that fire that I had and, and, and fueled it to be able to go into medical education, to be able to make sure that I'm diversifying the face right. of medicine. And welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we believe that healthcare belongs to everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Vecchio, a practicing pediatric cardiologist and educator. Together, we will explore the many facets of our unique American healthcare system, its strengths, its weaknesses, and what can be done to ensure that it meets its full potential to improve our lives. On each episode, we'll invite a special guest to help us on our journey. We'll learn about the various healthcare settings that these experts come from and the remarkable work they're doing to transform America's health. We'll take the best of what they have to offer so we can all reach for a better healthcare together. So join me now in our pursuit of health. Welcome back, everyone, to the Pursuit of Health podcast. Uh, we're still here and we're excited to be having discussions that I have found not only extremely informative, but I think provocative in many ways as well. We're getting a lot of positive feedback uh, in our past episode, which is still uh, airing now as we speak. We went across the uh, pond, so to speak, uh, the oceans, to the beautiful country of South Africa and discussed uh, the history of South African healthcare from its beginnings uh, as it started its new nation and its experience with uh, HIV and then COVID-19. But now we're coming back home. Uh, we're coming back to uh, join a, a wonderful uh, colleague in our field of uh, pediatrics, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Tyree Winters, who I've been excited to sit down with as many of our guests. For now over a year, uh, we've all been very busy with our lives in the pandemic, and we've been very excited. And I think we now have a very good foundation with a lot of things we've talked about to enter into the discussion with Dr. Winters about the experience of being a black physician in the United States, especially coming off of some of the discussions that we just finished with in South Africa. I think it's really interesting to come back home now with this discussion and talk about our healthcare system, which is much older than that of South Africa's, yet has a lot to do still to improve on where we started. And I think some of the lessons from the prior podcast and the most recent one are a nice segue into coming back home and kind of reflecting back again on ourselves. So as we do that, a uh, brief background for uh, Dr. Winters. Uh, he uh, had his bachelor's uh, of psychology at the University of Michigan. Um, I won't talk about what football fan he might be there or not. We'll get that later since we're broadcasting from New York. Uh, but then he actually went to where uh, my birth uh, state is, Ohio University, where he uh, went to Heritage College and uh, studied osteopathic medicine at that medical school and attended uh, subsequently uh, his residency program at Goryeb uh, Children's Hospital, if I'm correct as well. Oh, no, actually, that was also at Heritage College. 
That's correct. It was at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Nationwide. Okay, I told you some of our information is being cut off here technically, so thank you for that, for Nationwide Children's Hospital. And uh, since that point, has been spending a lot of uh, his time. He's been, if I included the entire list uh, of all the work he's done, we definitely would have uh, another hour here. Uh, but I wanted to focus on his most recent work uh, in the residency program, medical student uh, clerkship program, and general pediatric residencies at Goryeb Children's Hospital, the Atlantic Health System, where not only does he spend time teaching, which I think is one of the most important things that physicians can do with our patients and our students, um, being a mentorship uh, field of its own, but it is also uh, expanded out to and branched out into uh, a topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion as the lead physician in that department. And that's really where I wanted to sit back and focus today a little bit on that work. He's done so much work in other areas that are specific to important problems in our children, uh, in different backgrounds as well, dealing with uh, issues of health disparities, um, dealing with obesity, uh, often known more fondly as Dr. Ty, the hip-hop doc, who's done some work to really try to get people up and moving, as he says, as much for himself as for uh, the people he's working with uh, and the psychology of that. And, I, and that's obviously a, that's a whole other topic and a passion of mine, too, getting children healthy and thinking in the future. But here today, I wanted to focus on, if that was all right, uh, Dr. Winters, with you, uh, really on some of the work you've done to branch out and look at the racial disparity issues in healthcare as a physician, as an American physician, as a black physician, a, a physician of color, and why that work has become uh, part of your work today, a big focus of what you're doing, and focus on that discussion. So we're excited to have you with us today to uh, begin that discussion. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you as well. It's oh, awesome. Yeah, it is great. And it's it's always one of the, my pleasures of the week to sit down and, and have these discussions, which I think we don't do enough of. So thank you. Um, beginning with that, uh, if you would tell us, as with many of our guests, you know, I do believe that healthcare is a calling in many ways. And mm -hmm. something, almost every one of us has some story to what made us think, well, maybe I could be a doctor or I would like to be a doctor, as with many fields. But here we're talking about healthcare. And what were some of the early experiences that drew you to saying, hmm, medicine, a doctor, I could do that. I might like that. So tell us a little bit about your journey into healthcare. So, yeah, I mean, it goes into a part when we just talked about representation matters. Yeah. So I was privileged enough to have a black female as my pediatrician um, who I revered as a role model, um, Dr. Gwendolyn Gordon, who we just recently lost um, oh, sorry in the past so. Yeah, she lived a great long life. Um, she actually was my pediatrician for majority of my life growing up um, in Detroit. And the beauty about growing up in Detroit, which most people tend to not know about, especially given um, just the the way that media portrays and the way that mainstream um, theory portrays Detroit, especially if you're Black and from Detroit, mm. is that you grew up in poverty or you grew up um, lacking any type of access to certain things. And don't get me wrong, um, just like with any inner city, Detroit has its issues and it has its problems and health disparities, that's for sure. 
Um, however, the one beauty about Detroit is, is that especially growing up in Detroit in the 80s, um, going on into the 90s and, and leaving in the early 2000s is, one thing that's not mentioned is Detroit was great stratification of seeing African-Americans in all different aspects. So you had very affluent African-Americans that lived within Detroit. Um, and it was just from the history of Detroit itself. And just like with most, most areas, um, Blacks tend to have lived in areas that were heavily populated with Blacks. So regardless if you were affluent, if you were um, maybe lower in socioeconomic status, you tend to still kind of grow up around the same around the same areas. And so, you know, I was afforded the opportunity to live next to someone who may have struggled um, with you know, like a couple of a couple of streets away that was struggling. I was a single family, but then also next door was like the vice president for a motor company. Mm. So it's like, you know, you had that the history or, or that experience. And so I was fortunate enough to have experience of having both my parents go to college, being able to have um, several generations of my family that went to college and having a black pediatrician, a black accountant, a black lawyer, that was all things that my family had that I was experienced too. So mm. there was never a doubt in my mind that I could never have been a physician. And obviously seeing my pediatrician, um, I just remember at five years old, just like, you know, I want to be just like her. I want to mm. be a pediatrician. Sure. We so. all have those role models and, you know, I see, I see me there sometimes, you know. When exactly. You're like, yeah. Yeah. Do you, so you think that in Detroit in many ways, and cause that's a you know, I love again. I love where these discussions go because I'm getting the sense that some of reasons you're doing what you're doing are gone where you've gone and going where you're going um, has to do with Detroit, uh, the structure of how it may have started to approach this issue. Uh, many of our communities are still struggling to do so, but you saw, you know, the proximity of different aspects of people of different backgrounds, trying to work their way up together, living next to each other, Detroit perhaps being conscious about that in some way. And, you know, therefore you're never really saying, I'm going to take for granted what I have. I can look next door and realize, you know, there are those with less and, and I'm not going to forget that. Even if I have this, I'm not going to walk off entitled, so to speak. And I think sometimes we have concerns about communities from other nations, from other communities who kind of leave. It's a brain drain, it's a culture drain, and we leave behind instead of saying, hmm, you know, that's my community too. This is my city. This isn't it. I won't forget that as I move forward. Was there an element of that, you think? Um, yes and no. I think more no than yes. And the reason why I say that is because going on to thinking about why and, and yeah. And really diving into the historical aspect. And one of the things, even though just a fair warning, my background is not only in psychology, but also sociology. So that was my minor. And I'm huge into sociology. I love it. Yeah, it's um, and, and the issue, the issue is, is that in, it was forced, really. It was focused by design. For most neighborhoods, when you really do a deep dive. Hmm. It wasn't the fact that you couldn't 
or that that you desire to be around in a community such as this. It was just that was what was forced upon you. Mm-hmm. That was the housing that was available to you at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, because regardless of the different laws that were in place that allowed African Americans to to live in certain areas, usually you were either priced out or there was still policies that were in place that are still in place that tend to focus in and keep certain individuals or certain pockets of people into certain areas. And that was something that was very, very common, especially in the city of Detroit. Um, From from the time that you saw African-Americans start to um, really move in through the great migration, there was huge, huge policies that are still in place. If you go into areas of Detroit right now that are heavily populated with African-Americans, you have the toughest time being able to either afford or have a, um, have a loan that uh, whether it's a, a mortgage or it's a line of credit on your property to be able to do home improvements on your property versus you can go several streets down. And that's the reason why eight mile was even a thing because Mm. eight miles separated the city from the Northern suburbs. Um, You can go just over. And when you start to get more outside of that transition area where it's more heavily populated with whites, it's still to this day. And we talk about redlining back from the 1930s and 40s. It's still present where you can right. easily get a more a better home mortgage or a line of credit on your home or those different type of things that allow for you. So with that being said, you had areas and pockets of the city that once the 70s and 80s, when the government was the city's government was actually taken over by taking over you started seeing more elected officials that were African-American. You had what was called white flight. And there were large areas of the city that was just pretty much sold at bare minimum Mm. of whites trying to flee out the area. Well, there were really beautiful homes, like including in the area that I grew up in where My parents bought the house from, we were the second or third Black family on the block. Within a year or two, it was all Black. Right. And so, I, th- I think this whole discussion, um, if I'm correct, it's The Warmth of Other Suns, the book that discusses, yes. that discusses this whole uh, phase. And I highly recommend to anyone, um, it, it is such an important American story. That, Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah. And, and just tells us about how we shaped our cities, shaped who we are, how it's tied so far back, the sociology, as you say, and the infrastructure to that time, and what we were trying to do as a great American, uh, not really a you know a pilgrimage in some ways, but obviously refugees internally in, in many other ways, and how that created this dynamic you're talking about, and in some ways leads back to the discussion with my colleague about our own apartheid and from South Africa, how we had created this uh, infrastructure that we call, you know, uh, racism, that infrastructure, that built in uh, aspect to our uh, way of uh, doing things that codified this in a way that was perhaps even more subtle. But you're sitting there at this point watching the city go through this. And I think it's very important because 
you're telling people, you know, I, I want to be a doctor and you're, you know, I mean, at what point were you? Were you in high school or college when you said, yeah, I really want to do this? And, and when you did that, what did people's first response to you? What was the general kind of feedback when you said, hey, I want to be a doctor. I want to pursue medicine. Yeah. How was that received? It was so positive. I was Wonderful. so fortunate and blessed to be around um, individuals that really poured into me. And the interesting thing is, just to give you a little bit more yeah. of a twist to it, when I got to high school, so I, I went to private school um, during my first eight years, went to parochial school, actually. Um, and then afterwards, I went to a very famous high school in Detroit. That's a college preparatory high school. Um uh, Magnet High School named Cast Tech. So mm-hmm. Lewis Cast Technical High School, which tons and tons. Of, I can give you an hour long of all the alumni that came from there, mm-hmm. um, including like just Diana Ross and Lily Tomlin and David Allen Greer and all wow. these folks. We'll have to have you back. Um, okay, good. That's great. <laughs> and um, so going to Cast, I had the privilege of being in a curriculum. So we had curriculums that was very much almost as selecting a major, like if you were in college. And Mm -hmm. so my curriculum was chemical biology. And being in that curriculum, I had the opportunity during my 11th grade or junior year to be able to do a a co-op ship. And so the co-op was either I could be a, um, a volunteer at Henry Ford Hospital in downtown Detroit, or I could become a pharmacy tech at what was the time Arbor Drugs, which later on became CVS. Hmm. And I was like, well, one is volunteer, the other gets paid. I'm going to go with the one that gets paid. Hmm, sure. <laughs> because it Practical. was a different experience. Yeah, yeah. And so I, when I went in and got the opportunity to train to learn how to become a, a pharmacy tech, Um, It afforded me the opportunity to not only work um, in the pharmacy during that those last two years of high school, but it also exposed me to another field of healthcare that I was just unaware of. And I fell in love with it. And I really um, thought, okay, well, you know, I think I want to be a pharmacist instead Mm -hmm. of being a physician. Um, to my father's chagrin, because my father was the type, um, uh, I usually say he was a tiger dad. I know right. mm-hmm. that expression is usually used for oh. more Asian families, but yeah. my fa- my father very much was. Um, and it was, you could only be, the pinnacle things that you could be was four, four careers, either a doctor, a lawyer, a engineer, or a pastor. Mm. Um, and so... When I said I want to be a pharmacist, I was like, oh, you know, are you sure? Blah, blah, blah. But I was, when I went to Michigan, I was full steam ahead. I'm going to go on to pharmacy. And I applied, got accepted early on into the PharmD program at both University of Michigan, Massachusetts College of Pharmacy in Boston, and um, University of Toledo's program. And I started off at University of Michigan um, program and College of Pharmacy and quickly discovered hmm. that I really was interested in going into becoming a physician. And it was funny because my cousin at the time was starting off at Michigan State's allopathic medical school, the same 
semester that I was starting off in pharmacy school and we had a conversation. I said, you know, I'm I'm jealous of you. And she said, well, why? And I said, because you're starting medical school and I'm not. And she's like, but you're starting pharmacy school. And I said, I know, but I think I really want to go to medical school. Mm. She said, well, why don't you? And, you know, I thought about it. I was like, well, why don't I? So yeah. I actually. Um, in your first I, year. In my first first semester. Mm. I actually, and this was during a time that, you know, you only could take the MCAT twice, either in April or in August. Right. So it was August and just so happened, it was, it was by fate um, that the deadline to apply, because it was that summer, because we started in the summer, to the deadline to apply to take your MCAT was extended by three weeks that year for some odd reason. So somewhere and in I was two days shy. In September then sometime. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was two days shy of it. So I had 28 days. The 28th day was the day of the test. I had 27 days, rather, to study for my MCAT. So I literally grabbed her old MCAT Kathleen book. Hmm divided it into 27 sections with her. I was still working full time at the pharmacy during this time while I was, well, not full time, but it was about 30 hours a week. Cause I was just taking some, <laughs> the entry level classes in the pharmacy. Right. And I was a pharmacy intern and <laughs> I was studying during this time on my breaks for the MCAT took the test. And I told my parents like right before, maybe like, three or four days before I was taking my MCAT that I was going to take the MCAT mm. and I was going to ask for a leave of absence from pharmacy school so I can apply, go back to undergrad, finish the undergrad, because at the time, you know, you could, you could have, we started a PharmD program early, so you didn't have to graduate from, from undergrad. So I was still shy by like a year of credit to, to finish graduating when I got accepted to the PharmD program and I would have to go back to undergrad from the grad school to be able to finish my undergrad, which I did. That's called commitment, by the way. You put yourself on the spot when you told your parents, you know, that was a (laughs) pressure point there that we all have like, well, I'd let it out. I've got to succeed now. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. It was, that was the funniest thing because I just thought that my father would be ecstatic and my mother would be like, what are you doing? (laughs) But my mother was the one who was like ecstatic and was like, well, I figured that she was going to go to medical school anyway. I just figured that she was going to go to pharmacy school first, then go to medical school. And my father was the one like, what are you doing? Why do you want to do this? And being, which I see now really preparing me and having that conversation of this is not a game. If you're going to do this, you're going to have to have the dedication and determination to be able to follow through. So being being the typical father that my father was. Yeah. And I think you kind of said what a lot of us have to do in anything that's difficult you said i needed to own this myself and i'm going to show you i own this and and put it in the middle of all those other busy things you were doing is is just a declaration of i am serious about this now and i think you're right as physicians we all you know have to come to that point at some point we always hear the story of the colleague of ours who was a doctor because the parents want him to be but what did you want you know, and I think we've seen the difference for those who really don't really want to be there. And that's not good for them or for their patients in the end. But I think, you know, looking back at this, you're sitting there and it sounds like you got, as you said, a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, but I know that you have experience with uh, uh, students and others that you have mentored that haven't always gotten that positive reinforcement. And um, 
as you were going through, and here, you know, it's there's always that sense that, you know, everything's going well. I think we've all had that. We're doing well in school. We're doing this. Everybody's supporting us. But was there a point, as we discuss, you know, the, the disparities in in the background of people entering the medical field, whether it's pharmacy uh, nursing or medicine, we know that it doesn't match the population base. And just to throw some numbers out for our, our you know, our listeners here, five percent of physicians are uh, black physicians. Yet the black community makes up thirty some percent of our population, and that hasn't changed in some ways in decades, maybe a hundred years or so. So at some point, you're sitting there on that edge, going positive reinforcement, positive. This is great. This is great. And we all get to a point somewhere where we hit that wall. But talking about this, was there ever anyone who doubted that you could do this, that kind of took your natural drive and said, oh, now I'm going to show you, don't you dare do that to me. Um, but was there a moment like that? There was actually an undergrad. Um, there was only one professor that actually ever told me that um, I don't think that that you would you would get accepted to medical school. I, I think that you're not going to have a a chance just based off of um, off of my GPA, which was lower for a a medical school entry at three point two. Um, but the the interesting thing was is that I thanked her when she said that, and she kind of looked bewildered at me, and I said, "Thank you," because I've never had that opportunity. I know a lot of my, a lot of friends, you know, you, you read and you see a lot of individuals that talk about having, and having doubters and they use that as their internal drive to yeah. be able to, to show them wrong. And I said, I never had that, but you were, you just given me that, mm. that drive to succeed and prove you wrong. So, so actually, thank you. Right. And she looked at me very puzzled and like well i mean it's true and look where i'm sitting right now so right, right and and i think that you know i would dare say much of my personality many physicians personality is that you tell us what we can't do and we're going to prove you're wrong it's kind of that built in there and a lot of people talk about that and we'll get a little more into into this later but you know about kind of that competitive edge that we some of us have whether it's sports or it's performing in some ways. And it's, it's what we do as physicians too, or any tough field to get through it. So somebody says, Hey, I'm raising the bar. And you said, good, I'm jumping over it again. Keep going. Exactly. And, um, and I think that's important, but I think, do you also think as you went through this and, and worked with other students and give us a sense in your, in your school, were you seeing other uh, students of color uh, entering the field? Cause we know that's an issue in this country still. So that was a huge issue, especially within um, not only my school, but and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later on, my work with the Tour for Diversity in Medicine, right. um, which I have gone over the past now maybe seven years, and we've continued doing this virtually, even through um, through the pandemic, we have gone on several tours, actually getting on the bus, me and, and about roughly 30 colleagues of mine, uh, all black and brown um, doctors, dentists, podiatrists, um, pharmacists, and we've gone to historic black colleges and, and universities as well as Hispanic serving institutions to 
encourage um, students and help them to be able to understand the incredible matrix of the application process into medicine and into healthcare fields. And I saw that. I, I saw that even in my own um, institution where I was the only Black male who was pre-med at the time that was going through when I was at school. Um, and I've also seen it and talked to so many different students who have been given such either inaccurate or um, just very not not it was unedifying right. information that was given to them that either made it seem as if it was such a heavy hill to climb that it was no need to even take the first step or there was information that was given that was just inaccurate that you know well you're never going to get into medical school if you don't have a 3.8 GPA or if you don't have a you know a 520 or your MCAT you might as well just give up trying to to go to medical school and we're like, that's so not true. There are so many different things that you can do, you know, a holistic approach to getting into medical school. It was those, it, it was listening to those stories that allowed me to one, continue on striving to do this mentorship, but then also that even spurred that and, and, and further that that fire that I had and, and, and fueled it to be able to go into medical education, to be able to make sure that I'm diversifying the face right. of medicine. Right. And as, as you point out, you know, so, so clearly um, the, the, the game, the system is sort of stacked. Again, we're talking about the, the, the infrastructure of this and, and we've all felt it going through healthcare, and it's not being discussed just in terms of racial inequity, but gender and a whole bunch of other backgrounds here. But the question of what is the criteria that it should be legitimate to be a physician? What does it mm -hmm. mean to be a good physician? And I've gone through that uh, question as well. I mean, I have a background which would hold up on pedigree on paper anywhere, but I'm not sure that's what made me the physician I am. I think it's my background, it's my family, it's the people that I've encountered, my teachers, my patients. And, you know, the colleagues that I continue to work with, and I can tell you, I always tease my students, don't worry so much about all these little details anymore, because in the end, all the people really care about is what kind of colleague are you to work with? What kind of person are you? And I think healthcare is starting to turn that around in terms of the education and the recruiting process and saying, yeah, perhaps we were looking at the wrong issues here, the wrong things. We were forcing this, this tunnel and we're not necessarily getting what we thought we were going to get out of this. And, and you as a leader and a mentor and educator on that spec can see that as well. But then when you take those broad concepts and say, look, it's not just important that we rethink what it, we uh, use as criteria to be a physician, but we also rethink whether those criteria are wrong, not for just everybody, but also for areas where we have a paucity of physicians who need to be representative to reflect our society. 
And mm-hmm. are these these hoops that we're creating people jump through, whether it's the SATs, the MCATs, or scores, are they not only not legitimate in turn creating good physician, but are we excluding people who should be there for many, many reasons? And I, I think that you allude to that in your own story, but the work you're doing. And do you think in some sense that that awareness of that is something you've seen evolve over the past decade or so? Do you think that's opening up? I think it is. And I think that that's the reason why you may even see some of the backlash that we're seeing, not only in in politics itself, but also in just mainstream. Um, There has been continuous backlash in regards to um, even efforts to be able to diversify and include groups um, it doesn't have to be even racial groups like we talked about before, gender. We can talk about, um, you know, whether it is sexuality, whether it is based off of religion, whatever have you. There needs to be diversification. And, and I also think that it is this fallacy that exists that, well, we must lower our standards in order to be able to have this diversity and inclusion, which is never the case. Um, I will sing it from the rooftops. It was because of having a, an admissions director for my medical school who looked at me and said, I see a physician in you, even though I may have not had the ideal application in regards to scores. Right. However, one of the things that he looked at was, wow, you had a tremendous amount of community service. You excelled in your classes. You were able to excel even in programs. So I did a summer program, which was kind of like a six-week interview interview for medical school, which I excelled at. And I always tell everybody, I was fortunate enough to be able to have that opportunity, but that didn't that was never a, a something that stopped me. I still had to successfully pass all of my classes. I still had to successfully pass my board exams, whether those were the steps exams or whether that was the right. residency right. and my board examination. And my patients have never once, I've never had one patient ask me, what was your MCAT score? Right. Or a um, colleague or probably a colleague. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Never yeah. had one. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And I know I, I won't have one. Right. Um, but still having to deal with the system that's in place that we put. And for some, when you really break it down and you you think about why a system was in place for what it was in place for, you really realized historically that it was really meant to exclude certain groups. It was really meant, and it didn't even have to be racial groups, right? No we control for scores there are some some scores that will that can correlate with whether you will pass your boards but at the same time it's not the it's not a hundred percent accurate and it never should be considered that way right and that's why a lot of these exams standard exams are being looked at for what they as you mentioned sociologically are doing that mm-hmm. they are they are filtering out on criteria that are not only 
don't represent what you're trying to get through as you jump through that hoop and say, I'm trying to get you to be this or that professional or that it, and does that really do that? Or am I actually using this to exclude certain people and let only certain people get through that door? Is that what this test really is? And, and it really has been questioned and it's good to see that people have looked at that um, and in medicine and in other areas, but it really is something I've seen colleagues of mine who fit the pedigree, they played the game. And I would uh, take a person who I have no idea where they're from, but I know the kind of person they are. And I'll take them right by my side as a colleague any day. Um, that's why you meet with somebody is more important sometimes than what's on the paper. But I, if you look at that and you do this and you see people opening this up, and I think if I'm correct, there are certain universities who have really spearheaded this work in healthcare. Um, and Pace University comes to mind and some of these institutions who really said, you know, uh, there's a problem here with the fact that the number of physicians, percent of physicians doesn't match the population. And it's a problem not just for people of different races or backgrounds. It's a problem for all of us. And that, that waking up moment, that's like, well, this is not helping any of us move forward. We're not going to get to change Detroit or Chicago or our nation or a lot of the other problems if we are using these criteria to restrict physicians from or people from being physicians to back, different backgrounds will not get the representation. We're not lowering the bar here. We're opening up the criteria that it takes to be a physician and why is that important, uh, Dr. Winters, for there to be more representation that matches the society? When we talk about this in police and other areas, too, I know people are thinking that when we hear this discussion and in educators and teachers of other backgrounds. But what is it so important that we allow a black person, a young person to say, not only can I be a doctor, but we'll create an infrastructure that will allow you to be a doctor. Why is that important for society as a whole? Yeah. It's super important because when you look at even the data and as physicians, you know, we're very data driven. Right. It shows that individuals who are treated by individuals. So when our patients are treated by physicians and healthcare professionals who are from their communities, who look like them, they constantly report better outcomes as well as a better sense of having um, having, having better satisfaction. Inter- yeah, a meaningful yeah, yeah. interaction too. Absolutely right. And and the thing is, is that you know I had a professor once who who challenged this, who challenged this statement um, when I was in medical school, and he said, "Well, you know, I don't understand because regardless if I'm black or white." You know, our anatomy is the same. There's no difference with our anatomy. So why would it make a difference? And so when I said to him, I, I totally understand what, you, what you're saying. And yeah, thank you for asking way. that question. And I will now answer. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So I definitely understand what you're saying. But it's also something to be said for when you are taking care of me and I express to you my concern of being of being stressed out at work because of the minority tax that when i say the minority tax which is if there's things that come up that are focused in on minority issues 
I'm the one who's pointed out to address those things or asked to sit on committees or asked to do certain things along those lines. Women have the same issues. Members of the LGBTQIA community have the same issues. Physicians, case in point, how many times now since the pandemic have you been asked to give or give a talk to the community or something along the lines about what's going on with COVID? It's something that, you know, you are you're asked to do because one, you may, you're most likely have an interest in it for sure. But then two, you also are seen upon as being someone who can be a leader or, or somebody who can speak to that. Well, imagine that being every single waking moment, there is not the pandemic is just continuous, which is going right. to be, but nevertheless. Right. Correct. <laughs> no, but I think that's a good analogy because we're trying, and I think that's important, Dr. Winters, we're, we're, we're trying to get to the point where people can be empathic about what other people are going through, right? And otherwise, if we don't have that empathy and compassion, we won't get there. I think using the analogy of the fatigue of the COVID pandemic, which we're all sharing to some degree in different ways again, but sharing gives us that commonality to go, hey, I get that because this is getting really down on me. I'm getting tired of this. I can understand now what he might be feeling in another way. It's okay. Right. And, that, you know, make analogies like that. I think it's important to create that bridge there. Yeah. And I think that's the part where you find, I mean, it's the same argument that someone may make if a, um, a, a gender, one person and a gender may want to have a physician that also shares their gender with them. Right. It's not necessarily saying that I can't see them. So I'm just like, just say if I had a young female patient who requested to see a female doctor and yes, I studied the female anatomy just the same way as my female colleague has studied the female anatomy, but it is something about that shared connection when you are having that conversation with them. Um, I had somebody asked, well, you bring up that one, but how about if a white patient asked that they didn't want to see a, they want to see a white doctor and not see a black doctor? And I said, well, I think that's completely fine if the argument is not that I don't think that that black doctor or that Asian doctor or whoever doctor is more, is, is inferior to the white doctor. That's Typically, where the question is, mm-hmm. most times when a female patient is asking for a female doctor, it's not the fact that they think that the male doctor is inferior. No, right. it's a comfort level. Right. So if there was a comfort level issue, Absolutely. totally, I think that's a go for it. Problem. Right, right. But, but if it's an inferiority issue, that's a different thing. If there's a judgment on capability and intellect and all those other things, and you know, a sense of a superiority on grounds that are not founded just based on other factors, then we're walking with biases of our own on both sides. But we're human beings, and right. we have to feel comfortable, and that's the aspect you're talking about. Uh, you work in a community where people are going through things in their community that they need to feel a, the ability to tell you, Doc, you know, this is going on. And they may feel much more comfortable with someone who looks like them, 
uh, may understand the background, may understand the culture, the food, the music, anything that they can do to put that human stamp onto that issue at that moment. Without that, uh, I say, without that, it's all technical. There is no healing. It's, right. there's, there's, the healing takes a lot more than just the ability to prescribe a medication, do a procedure, and uh, you know, say, uh, pat you on the door. It's healing is wrapping all that into the bow of humanity and where that's where that all comes from that you're talking about so absolutely are you sure you're not a deal uh, <laughs> well see i think i've had some wonderful mentors uh places like columbia that started to really open that door up as well many places that i've seen along the way and working with the toro university and coming with biases of my own from the allopathic mm-hmm. background and then working with the do students and seeing wait a second you know um, I did have biases, and I've opened that too. And I think that's been very uh, exciting for me to be able to do that and see that growth and understand that is what makes a physician for me, not necessarily all the things I necessarily went through. And I'm still growing in that sense. That's why these discussions are wonderful, all of us, to be part of. Because ultimately, if somebody is sitting there and there are health issues in a community in Detroit or somewhere else, and they can't have those issues addressed because not only just access, period, end. We're not even talking about the fact that there may not just be as many physicians, period, in those communities, but physicians who understand me as a human being as much, then we're dealing with a very basic premise here. There's not enough health care. Yeah. And what are the implications of that? I agree. And and that's the other thing that's why it's so important to have individuals in certain communities being able to represent, because we know that minority physicians tend to go back into communities where there are minority patients. Right. And we're filling in that gap. I mean, me personally, if you looked at the span of my career, right. I've always worked in underserved communities. I've never not worked right. in an underserved community because that was a dedication of mine. And that's even why I even got um, been able to be a part of the National Service Corps because I knew that that was something that I was dedicated to doing. So as always, I find these discussions incredibly interesting and more importantly, very relevant to the issues that we are all facing now in the pandemic and the issues that have led up to this for obviously many, many years. It is clear uh, from Dr. Winter's work that there is much to be done and perhaps, as we've alluded to, the gap of need, the needs gap has increased even further. But in there is a light of hope because people are now aware of these issues. We're all turning and facing in many ways because of the pandemic and looking at health care and its relevance to all of us. And this includes the racial inequities in terms of people's ability to access care, receive care, public health, prevention. And it begins with the education, perhaps, of that young black person who says, I could be a doctor and help someone. I think this was very important and a kernel of thought that I look forward to all of you responding to in some way 
It is because of your ideas on these discussions and our prior discussions that we are growing and the discussion is growing into a very productive, uh, I hope, forum for everybody to begin to think, what can I do to get out there and be part of what's going on and make my communities better? Until next time, take care of each other. This is Dr. Fecky wishing you well in all your pursuits.